Good morning. Nice to hear you all. This morning, I am sporting the oh-so-fashionable smart-with-sandals look. Okay, granted, these are a little bit more like flip-flops. They should really be looking a bit more like those. I'm not thrilled about this look, to be honest. Um, Sounded like a great idea in theory, but now I'm actually here, I'm thinking that it doesn't really work. I, I want to be smart. I'm dealing with the word of God this morning. I want to be smart. I want to be respectful of that. I want to be respectful of you as my wonderful church family. It's kind of detracted from a little bit by my feet. They're already getting a bit grubby since I, I did wash them this morning. Um, but they're already getting a bit grubby. And bear in mind that actually, I mean, I've done very little this morning. I haven't exactly been walking down really dusty streets, unsuccessfully navigating the excrement of the sheep, goats, and various other animals that would have wandered down a first century road. It's fair to say, in our family, that my wife Rebecca would be the one who normally, and as she has done this morning, been wearing things which reveal her feet sandals and so on, and I do love my wife dearly, let me say that very publicly, but the thought of going anywhere near her feet after a long day doesn't fill me with, um... sorry, she's grinning at me as if to say, don't use me as an example again. Uh... (laughs) For Jesus and the disciples, travel was majority on foot, and certainly the streets of Norwich are nothing like the dusty streets that Judea would have had. Hence, foot washing was commonplace. It was customary when somebody entered your home that you would wash your guests' feet. It was considered quite an affront, a major breach of hospitality to not do this. In Luke chapter 7, one of the Pharisees, one of the teachers of the law, called Simon, he invites Jesus to dinner. And while they're reclining at the table, a woman described as having lived a sinful life stands behind Jesus, wiping tears onto his feet. She wipes them with her hair. She bathes them in perfume. Simon wasn't impressed that she was letting a sinner do this. Luke writes, Then Jesus turned towards the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me water for my feet, but she wet her feet, wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Washing guests' feet was a job for a very lowly household servant. About 800 years earlier, when David wants Abigail to marry him, 1 Samuel 25 tells us that she didn't consider herself worthy of being his wife and would have gladly washed the feet of the other servants. One Jewish text suggests that it was something a Gentile, a non-Jewish slave, could be asked to do, but not a Jewish one. Such was the lowliness of the task. But it's also the case that foot washing was something done as a very intimate thing, by children for parents, wives for husbands, disciples for teachers. The point is, this is a very customary, but very lowly thing to do, and potentially quite intimate. And there isn't really any kind of modern equivalent to this. People have suggested all sorts of things. Taking someone's coat when they come into your home. 
or maybe making them a cup of tea, or even, as one place suggested, valet parking their car as the modern equivalent in Western society. But they don't convey that particular combination. Something very necessary, but something very lowly. So for Peter and the other disciples, it would be absolutely unthinkable that Jesus, their master and teacher, would be doing it for them. To help picture this, we've got a couple of Tintoretto's famous pictures, famous paintings of it. First one's a little bit dark, not particularly clear, that one. I like this one, if I'm honest, but there is a rather distracting dog sat right in the front of this picture. Uh, So let's just home in on Jesus for a moment. For Jesus, this act of foot washing is likely to have been one of the final acts before his death. Uh, Scholars believe this is likely to have been at his final meal with his disciples. In verse 1 of our chapter today, we find that he loved them to the end, both of his life, but also to the full extent in the ultimate expression of his love, his sacrifice. In verses 1 to 3, please do keep John 13 open if you've still got that in front of you. In verses 1 to 3, we find out that Jesus knew that his hour was come. In chapters 2, 7 and 8 of John, it said that his hour had not yet come. And he also knew, as it says in verse 3, that his father had given him all things. And yet, in this passage, he picks up a towel. He also knew Judas would betray him. And this is fascinating that Jesus washed the feet even of the one who would betray him. In doing this foot washing, Jesus was looking beyond the immediate future to set up what will need to come from the disciples when they no longer have him with them. He's leading by example. And the original words that John used in this passage in verse 4 for taking off the outer clothing and in verse 12 for putting it on again seem quite deliberately similar to the words that he uses for Jesus laying down his life and taking it up again. But right here in this moment, Jesus makes his way around the group. We don't know how many he gets round before he gets to Peter. But when he does, Peter cannot contain his confusion. Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus doesn't actually answer him, doesn't say yes or explain why. He just tells Peter, you'll get this in the future. Later in the New Testament, we see that Peter absolutely did get it. This is Peter writing. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, because God opposes the proud, but shows favour to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Peter eventually comes to realise that humble service is part of obedience to Christ. The humbling act of foot washing was indicative of the ultimate act of humbling when Jesus himself, the Son of God, humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, as it says in Philippians 2. But, back at the table, Peter, seeing this at this moment, is still so confused. He even directs Jesus, and the original language is really strong here. You will never wash my feet. 
His response is actually quite loving towards Jesus, but it's way too full of himself. He's only thinking about his own unworthiness. You can imagine Peter looking in disbelief at all the other disciples who were letting Jesus do this. Peter hasn't yet learnt how to be served, and we're going to come back to that point. Again, Jesus doesn't explain the symbolism. He tells Peter the impact. Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Jesus wants Peter's obedience to this act before he explains it, and that's just the same with us. We're called to be obedient to God, even if we don't understand the immediate reasons for it. And just trust God's wisdom for asking us to do it. Peter immediately goes from being the kid staring nervously at the edge of the pool to the kid who's doing the high dive and bombing straight in. Okay, Lord, don't just stop at my feet. Do the rest of me too. Um, He doesn't want to lose that fellowship with Jesus. But his answer is still quite me-focused. After Peter's denials, that's going to shift. But for now, Jesus has his obedience and starts to explain. The first part is a, calm down, Peter, calm down. If you've already had a bath, you don't need another one today. What it means to be clean in this passage is a little bit of scholarly debate, but it's most likely referring to Jesus uh, making people clean by his word, John 15, verse 3. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. With the exception of Judas, they received the revelation that Jesus offered and acknowledged him as having come from God. They are with him as members of his community. And when we trust in Jesus, we are bathed all over. Our sins washed away and we're forgiven. Foot washing comes after that, the continued daily demucking of sin off our feet, as God promises when we confess our sins, or the further learning and service that we do. Jesus finishes washing the disciples' feet, bearing in mind there were 12 of them, this would have taken some time, and asks them if they understand. True leadership is one of humble service. If Jesus, who is teacher, Lord, Son of God, is on a higher level than all of us, if he loves us and humbles himself to that position, then there is nothing that is beneath us in the service of one another. Certainly it's the case that our leaders are first and foremost servants. James, John, and Peter would soon become the leaders of the early Christian church in Jerusalem, and I bet they would have thought back to this time. Jesus' words to them in Luke chapter 9, for it is the one who is least among you all who is the greatest. Greatness isn't found in comparing myself with someone else, but it's found in humility. The disciples took the lesson Jesus gave to heart and served the church with humility that early church. The result of such an attitude, as it says in verse 17, is that we are blessed because of what we do with what we know. As we've humbly received from him, so we humbly serve others. And humility in leadership is a really good thing, not just when we're thinking about church. John Balladoni, writing in the Harvard Business Review, 
praises humble leaders and their characteristics of tempered authority, looking to promote others to positions even higher than their own, and simply acknowledging what others do. But humility is not timidity. It is meekness, not weakness. It is strength without self-exaltation. A Malay proverb, I love this, it says, the fuller the ear is of rice grain, the lower it bends. True humility grows out of our relationship with the Father. If we desire to know God and do his will, then we will follow Christ's example and serve each other. Several Christian denominations take Jesus' words very literally. They practice the the ritual of foot washing on Maundy Thursday, the Thursday before Easter. St. Ambrose interpreted Jesus' command as a literal one and practiced foot washing in the church in Milan. St. Austin talked of doing it in the heart, but that it was better to do it with the hands also. Many charitable organizations find that washing the feet of the homeless or the incarcerated does a massive service to those that many of us would ignore. So should we do that? Should we be practicing foot washing in this literal way? Well, there are certainly times when it may be appropriate. Matthew Henry writes, what Christ has done, Christians should not disdain to do. So it shouldn't be beneath us to do that. But when Jesus washed the disciples' feet, it was symbolic as much as, if not more, than it was practical. It was symbolic of the spiritual washing away of sin, and though that's something only Christ can do, it is something that we can help each other do in bringing bringing each other to Christ to repent of the grime that we've acquired. But it's also symbolic of the way in which his followers are to manifest the selfless love of God without pride or position. Verse 16, we read, The servant is not greater than the one they serve. So if the master becomes the servant, whoever they serve is lifted up to the level of the master. Jesus lifted us up and showed us the value of service. Who are we to say that something is beneath us if Jesus would do such a lowly thing? But remember that serving each other is not the only thing that Jesus was getting at here. Peter needed to learn how to be served. Serving and being served are inherently related. The American pastor Warren Wiersbe writes this, It takes humility and grace to serve others, but it also takes humility and grace to allow others to serve us. The beautiful thing about a submissive spirit is that it can both give and receive to the glory of God. A spirit which is submissive to God is one which readily submits to each other. A spirit which desires to know God and do his will is one which is also able to be served. Not to reject offers of help, nor to abuse them. Have you ever watched someone in a restaurant or cafe being served? I I people watch an awful lot, so I do this a huge amount of the time. And we were at a wedding recently, and I was watching everyone as they were being served by the waiters at the table. 
For some of us, it's incredibly uncomfortable being served, even if it's the waiting staff's job. We don't quite know what to do. We, we, some of us sit really, really stiffly and don't move. Some of us try to do that helpful lean as they pass things over our shoulder. Um, some of us don't know where to look, where to put our hands, what kind of verbal communication is appropriate. Others go too far the other way, demanding things. You're here to serve me. But some of us find it so difficult to, to let others serve us, even when we just can't do things by ourselves. But in serving God, in serving others, we serve God. So there is a blessing that comes from serving, and we can easily rob someone else of that blessing. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 8 to 10. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Think back to the last time you helped someone. Cost you something? Maybe in time? Maybe in money? Maybe the cost was a little? Maybe the cost was a lot? But in serving them, you served God. And despite the cost, it can feel good to use whatever God has given you to serve someone else. There's a reason for that. But now think back to the last time you let someone help you. The funny thing is that Jesus came to serve us. And in doing so, serve his father. Mark chapter 10, two brothers, James and John, they want some special promises of great positions in the kingdom to come. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, with their high officials exercising authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and give his life as a ransom for many. How do we react to being served by Jesus? Do we, like Peter, feel that we are too unworthy, focusing on our own lack of self-worth rather than on him? Or do we humbly and gratefully accept that Jesus came to serve and give his life that we might have eternal life. The words of From Heaven You Came that we sang just before, uh, just before we had our reading this morning, they are spot on. From heaven you came, helpless babe, entered our world your glory veiled, not to be served, but to serve, and give your life that we might live. This is our God, the servant king, who calls us now to follow him, to bring our lives as a daily offering of worship to the servant king. If you don't know this Jesus, and you'd like to find out more, 
please do come and talk to myself or Nigel afterwards. We would be delighted to talk to you more about him. But for all of us, Jesus, the Son of God, humbled himself and served his Father by serving us. The best teachers lead by example. And he did that. Verse 15. Don't just do as I say, do as I do. But we should also learn from Peter that we must be able to be served. Let us have a submissive spirit to both give and receive to the glory of God.